You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. She's making up stories like one after another. Her superiors, men many years older, a number of them are hiding behind executive privilege, anonymity, and intimidation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. He's releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at a clip no other president has ever used. The revelations from this committee make his path to even the Republican nomination much more tenuous. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Fallout from the January 6th committee, the pushback from Democrats in Congress on the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade, uh, all the action on gas prices. It is not a slow Friday. We've got a lot of news for you. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick filling in for Joe Matthew today. We're going to talk shortly with Congresswoman Lois Frankel, Democrat from Florida. She is one of the co-chairs of the Democratic Women's Caucus and on the key House Appropriations Committee that is responsible for funding the government. We're to talk about what comes next after that Supreme Court ruling. Mick Mulvaney is also going to call in the former White House acting chief of staff who resigned on January 6, 2021 over what happened at the Capitol. We'll get some of his takeaways on the January 6th committee. And of course, we've got Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis joining us to make sense of this action-packed news week here on the Fastest Hour in Politics and Policy. Go to Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta, who is live from New York City's LaGuardia Airport to tell us about the summer air travel disruptions. Kriti, uh, for people like me who are about to go on vacation immediately after this show is over, how's it looking at LaGuardia? You know, Jack, it's been quite the day. And I started out the day at about 8 a.m. this morning. and It seemed completely calm. No chaos at all. A lot of people we had spoken to had said, well, you know what, all the travel, all the chaos, it was earlier in the week. People were anticipating these 
lags, these delays, these cancellations, of course, the labor shortages and the flight attendant crew uh, shortages that, of course, are causing some of these. But I think the takeaway here is that by the end of the day, about eight hours later, you are now starting to see major delays, major cancellations. A lot of people actually not even able to get a hold of customer service for as much as two to four hours being sent out of security for the next flight that really only comes a day later. So I would say what was supposed to be a pretty busy holiday weekend. A lot of people have already gotten ahead of it, but it looks like there are still going to be some snags in this weekend's travel story. All right. I will prepare myself for the worst. Thank you, Kriti Gupta. Uh, We now have Congresswoman Lois Frankel joining us. Congressman, very, very happy to have you on. Uh, As I mentioned, because you are a co-chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus, but also I have been watching all of the appropriations markups this week, and you have been one of the most vocal members uh, on the Democratic side on what comes next after this Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I want to play a little sound first from Dick Durbin in the Senate to to set the stage here on what he had to say about what the options are. Here's what Dick Durbin had to say. When we're all present and voting, uh, Kamala Harris can ride to our rescue if necessary. But the notion of changing the rules is it really at the mercy of one or two senators who can uh, make that decision for us. So, Congresswoman, with the 50-50 Senate in in mind, what are the realistic options that you want to see Congress take in terms of abortion access following the Supreme Court ruling? Well, first, thanks. Good good to be with you. Well, let me remind everybody that the House did pass the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, which... uh, actually bans or prohibits states from from banning abortions or putting unreasonable medical restrictions. That's over in the Senate. And as you mentioned, it's going to take uh, 60 votes unless they uh, go back, they change a rule and go back to a, a, a majority vote. So, uh, you know, it's not likely they're going to do it, but I still think there should be pressure bared upon some of the pro, you know, the the people who believe in reproductive freedom, those senators to to uh, to change a rule. Listen, if there's been ever been a time in our history of this Congress that we should not monkey around, uh, you know, and and say, hey, we can't go to fifty a majority vote. This is it because this Supreme Court decision has unbelievable implications. It is. Uh, it's really almost mind-boggling. So, but in the meantime, uh, you're gonna. We have to take actions that are going to mitigate the harm. The Supreme Court has now uh, taken away people's power to make their own personal decisions about their reproductive health, their life, and their future, giving it to the state politicians. What does that mean? That means very uh, quickly there are going to be 26 states, 27 states are going to ban abortion. There may be uh, many more that are going to put uh, severe restrictions that make it almost impossible. What does that mean, especially to low-income women of color, people who have a hard time getting health care in the first place? They are going to be uh, either have a forced pregnancy or use their every last uh, penny, maybe maybe their, their week's pay to even uh, find a place where they can get an abortion. So... Uh, we've got to do, we got to fight this ruling, uh, you know, with full force, and that's going to probably be at the ballot box. Uh, but in the meantime, we've got to try to mitigate the harm, and that's making sure that there is funding for 
uh, contraception and family planning uh, that we, uh, if it's possible, uh, again, with this, with the Senate, it's not too many things are possible, but uh, vouchers for people to travel. We've got to make sure uh, that uh, any a medical uh, way that someone can have an abortion, that that is allowed uh, through what uh, would be the, an abortion pill. Uh, so uh, and I'm, I'm not sure whether this was mentioned, but the uh, president has directed the, he- the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, to protect uh, um, contraception and medication uh, right. that that will, uh, you know, result in an abortion. So it's and the FDA approved uh, Miss Pristone. I, I'm, I'm not if I'm saying it right, but it's Miss Pristone to safely end the early pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You're going to start to see states trying to ban that because that's some appeal you can get into the in the mail. So, Congresswoman, a couple of those issues that you just mentioned came up in the Appropriations Committee, the idea of funding, uh, whether it's the Hyde Amendment measures on uh, funding for the Justice Department for abortions if if a woman is in federal custody, a variety of abortion access via government funding measures. And it does seem that you Democrats are quite determined to roll back the Hyde Amendment and some of those longstanding restrictions. But it seems that the key question is – how dug in are you on that? Those bills need 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, are you going to shut the government down over ab- abortion access via government funding bills? I would say not, because I think we would do more harm than good by doing that. And, it, you know, really, the Republicans don't even, I don't think they care that much about passing a new budget. Uh, mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the reason you need a new budget every year is because because things change and you have to stay up with the times. Uh, we have been fighting on this, uh, and this, just so people know what, what, what the Hyde and the Helms Amendment do, is basically Hyde does, does not allow public funding, uh, which would be in this instance Medicaid, to fund abortion. Who does that hurt? It hurts the, you know, the, the poorest, the working poor of this country who depend on Medicaid uh, for, for their health care. Uh, you know what? So who is this going to affect? The 14-year-old girl who's raped by her father and now and can't afford an abortion, or or uh, a struggling mother who may already have three or four children, or uh, someone who's uh, or or a young person with hopes and dreams who who has a whole future ahead of themselves, and really this is not the time to bring a child into the world. So there's a lot of. Uh, Implications. I could really go on and on with the anecdotes, but I, I think what's important here is that uh, when when you, this is this the injustice that has been inflicted by the Supreme Court uh, and having uh, what's called this Hyde Amendment, which does not allow uh, the use of Medicaid dollars or funding dollars to, for poor women to get abortion. I mean, who does it? Who is it mostly aimed at? Who gets hurt the worst? Are people who who really can't have the hardest time sending for themselves? Right. 
So, Congresswoman, what about the administration? If we're talking about realistic options to try to counter the effects of this that Democrats want, I noticed the governors of New York and New Mexico were pushing uh, President Biden on the idea of using federal lands uh, to avoid state bans on abortion. Is the administration leaving any realistic options on the table at this point? Well, we've had, I know I've been in a number of conversations with the President's Gender Council, and those are folks who have really been looking at this issue for, you know, since the president uh, took office. And, you know, look, it's a nice idea. Yeah, I could have, you know, have, have a, use a federal law, land for an abortion clinic. But the fact of the matter is, it's not going to make up for the, all the clinics closing all in, in, this, in the, you know, 27 states that, that are going to ban abortion. So, uh, you know, it's a nice idea. It's not really a substitute. I, I think the best thing, really, that the president is doing right now is on the um, the uh, the medical drug and making sure that it can be sent, you know, mailed out. And uh, also, uh, the Justice Department is protecting uh, people who cross state lines because you're going to see. That there are going to be instances where uh, people will, you know, travel to other states, and there's going to be an attempt, I'm sure, by some of the states that are banning abortion to to try to prosecute those people. Right, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. That's Congresswoman Lois Frankel, Democrat from Florida, uh, co-chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus and a member of the House Appropriations Committee where they debated uh, those issues. We're going to have Mick Mulvaney on the phone in a little bit, the former White House acting chief of staff to discuss January 6th takeaways. Uh, We'll also get to our Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Sheehan-Zano and Rick Davis to discuss the takeaways from this week and what's ahead from that committee and others. That's coming up in just a minute. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Jack Fitzpatrick here in for Joe, who's going to be back next week. You just heard from Congresswoman Lois Frankel uh, on the options or maybe lack of options for Democrats to 
fight back on the Supreme Court ruling striking down the Roe v. Wade precedent. Let's bring in the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis. Guys, it, it almost sounded like the congresswoman uh, maybe speaking on behalf of some House Democrats there. It was a little defeated. It stood out to me, you know, they've gone through this whole series of fights over government funding availability for abortion access, whether for those on Medicaid or, or elsewhere. Uh, but it, as she said, a, a shutdown over this, really digging their heels in on these government funding bi- bills to fight this battle would do more harm than good. Uh, Jeannie, what do you make of that? I, I, you know, it, it sounds like the some of the most enthusiastic Democrats are still uh, settled into uh, the reality that they don't have that many options. Yeah, I mean, and I felt listening to her that she really echoed some of the frustration uh, you hear from some of the base and people on the ground. You know, if, you know, for, for people like the Congresswoman and other members of the House who passed, for instance, the Health Protection Act, and who, you know, these voters that you talk about who say, listen, I voted Democratic, I did what you told me and asked me to do, and yet here we are, I think there is a real sense of frustration. But that said, you also look at the flip side of this, which is that you've got a lot of Democrats increasing numbers just in the last week since this came out, who are banking that it is going to help them get voters out to the polls as the number of ads and the amount of spending on ads talking about this issue from Democrats has increased exponentially. So I think there is frustration from the legislative end in the House and the Senate and the federal level. But I also think there is a sense, at least among some people running, that this has increased enthusiasm among the base and may help them in November. Well, I think clearly you're right about that, Jeannie. But on the other hand, they're not going to, what, win a a supermajority in the Senate. They're not going to have 60 votes. Uh, And that's something the congresswoman touched on, saying that they they should not apply the Senate's 60-vote threshold to this kind of issue. Uh, Rick, how much of a difference does it make, especially when the president says there should be a filibuster carve-out in the Senate? Is Is there any reason to believe something like that would actually happen? No, I mean, there have been ample opportunities uh, with some of the hallmark legislation that the Biden administration has been promoting for the last two years to do this. And maybe it doesn't rise to the level of, uh, you know, uh, importance that uh, the, the defeat of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court does. But it was pretty important to Biden, and they couldn't budge uh, to, to accomplish that. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that this isn't anything other than just sort of political posturing. Uh, but I must say, I was I was uh, taken by Representative Frankel's kind of you know depressed attitude toward this. I mean, and if she is reflective at all of the Democratic base, uh, I I would worry that it might be backfiring and not exciting them to do something. But the realization that there just simply isn't that much they can do may hurt them in the November elections. Well, and you can tell the options are limited when you hear about these legally creative ideas. And as I mentioned in the interview with the congresswoman, uh, the governors of New York and New Mexico brought up the idea directly today with the president of using federal lands, abortion clinics on federal lands or properties, uh, could be military properties, to try to get around state bans. Uh, Jeannie, what do you make of the administration's stance on it. They haven't uh, taken that up. Is that a realistic option in any way? 
I don't think it is. And I think we heard that from the congresswoman. And I, too, was surprised by the fact that she so quickly seemed to say, you know, that's not a realistic option in terms of having any real impact on the ground and in terms of addressing the issue. And I think one of the things that Democrats have said since this happened is, number one, it felt like the Democrats from the top had been caught off guard when they shouldn't have been because we knew this was coming. And number two, there's been something of a disjointed response on the part of Democrats to this. I think the president meeting with the governors today was an attempt by the administration to try to corral the upper echelon of the party together and try to come to a, you know, some kind of consensus on how they can move forward. But I think it is problematic that they haven't gotten that. And that is, you know, what I think, you know, I agree with Rick that there is a sense that this can increase enthusiasm. But there's also the flip side of that, which is a real frustration, which keeps people home saying a sense of inefficacy. You know, why should I go out and participate? Because it's not going to yield much. So Democrats have to be very careful about that possibility. Well, one other little bit uh, of news out of the White House as we change gears that I I wanted to touch on was the list of Presidential Medal of Freedom winners, uh, some posthumous, John McCain, Steve Jobs, uh, as well as uh, some other big names, Simone Biles, Gabby Giffords, Denzel Washington, Megan Rapinoe. Rick, I I wonder about the timing of these sometimes when it comes out from the White House. Real quick, what what does it mean for uh, someone like you who worked with John McCain or maybe even to his family uh, to see this honor for McCain? Uh, look, I'm, I'm, first of all, thank the Biden administration for doing something that uh, a president of John's own party wasn't willing to do. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump had many opportunities to do it and, and, and didn't. So thank you. I mean, I think this is great. I, the, the list is very distinguished. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by it. And I think it reminds American people of the service and sacrifice that so many people have given to this country. And it can come at a better time when there's a lot of self-doubt about the future of our country's democracy. Right. Rick and Jeannie will be back with us in a little bit. We're also going to hear from Mick Mulvaney, the former White House acting chief of staff on takeaways from the January 6th Congressional Committee's investigation. That's coming up. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. By now, you have probably heard the tale of the former president, Donald Trump, trying to commandeer the beast and drive up to uh, the Capitol on January 6, 2021, even, uh, you may say, assaulting or accosting physically a Secret Service agent. We're going to speak with Mick Mulvaney, former White House acting chief of staff, who uh, at the time was in the Trump administration as the envoy to Northern Ireland. He ended up resigning from the administration over what happened on January January 6th. We've got to get into the revelations that have been coming out from the January 6th committee in Congress investigating the uh, insurrection at the Capitol, their uh, arguments uh, that the president, former president Donald Trump, did not have any legal merit to his claims of voter fraud. But also this week, uh, the story relayed by then White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson that Trump physically tried to get himself driven 
to the Capitol while all of this was happening. We're going to talk to Mick Mulvaney, the former White House acting chief of staff. First, here is what former President Trump had to say about that story relayed by Cassidy Hutchinson. Trump spoke in an interview with Newsmax yesterday. She's making up stories like one after another. But the craziest of all was that I tried to commandeer, I think they used that word, I tried to commandeer uh, a car with Secret Service agents telling them to take take us down to the Capitol. It was totally false. Mr. Mulvaney, thank you so much for joining us. It seems someone is lying. Uh, and I want to know, especially from a, a former acting chief of staff in the White House, I, I believe you knew uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. How credible is she? Can you tell us a, about the person who is the, the source of this information? Sure, Jack, and uh, thanks for having me. She's, she's very credible. I, I think that uh, a lot of attention was paid to that particular part of her testimony because it was so sensational, the visual image of the president leaning up from the back of the SUV, grabbing the steering wheel and then, you know, choking uh, his, his Secret Service agent. It's very dramatic, very sensational stuff. Um, she was very clear, I thought, in her testimony that she didn't see that, that she was told that story by Tony Ornato, mm-hmm. um, and that Tony will now, I think, is now saying he's going to testify. Otherwise, I think it's one of those situations where uh, folks have sort of missed what the important stuff is. It's really, listen, it's a crime to assault a Secret Service agent. It is, right? Mm-hmm. But her other testimony was much more, much more interesting, much more substantial, that the president knew there were guns uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the January 6th rally and that he had said that let these folks in with guns and they can go to the Capitol from here. That is a, that's, a, that's a major, major development. There's also testimony that Cassidy gave um, that she uh, knew that Mark Meadows was communicating with some of the right-wing extremist groups in, in uh, advance of January 6th. Those things touch on potential serious crimes. Um, and while, like you said, the, the grabbing the steering wheel is sort of a visual image that a lot of folks have locked in on, uh, to me, it's probably the fourth or fifth most important piece of that testimony. So... I understand, and I may even agree that that was not the most important thing to come out of the January 6th committee. I've got to ask, though, if there does end up being testimony from anyone from the Secret Service saying that did not happen, I've got to ask, do you know the Secret Service to be willing to lie on behalf of a former president, or would you take that to be the absolute truth? No, absolutely not. I don't think the Secret Service would lie for anybody. But I think it raises the issue, Jack, and this is where I, I think the, the hearing is going, or at least the discussion is going to turn. It's a question I ask, and again, I, I have been, I've defended the president for the last year over his actions on that day. I quit because I thought he failed as, as my president, but I never thought he committed a crime, and I didn't think he committed any impeachable offenses, so I've actually been defending him in a roundabout way. But my question would be this, okay, if she said four or five things, um, and a Secret Service agent is willing to come forward and say, well, that one particular matter about this, this, the, the SUV, that's false, and I will testify under oath that is false. Where are the other people who are willing to come forward and testify under oath that the other things about the guns and the right-wing extremist groups are, not, uh, are, are also mm-hmm. false? That's, that's, I think, a reasonable next question. Um, and I've not heard anybody push back yet on, those, uh, on, the, on the veracity of, of that particular part of her testimony. Right. And based on that part of the testimony and that focus that has the committee has had, do you still think that 
former President Trump did nothing impeachable or nothing illegal, or have you changed your mind at all about that? Uh, I am. I am. Count me now amongst the undecided. Uh, I believe Cassidy. Cassidy, she worked for me. I didn't know her very well. I don't pretend to know her. She was a junior person. She was in the Office of Legislative Affairs. Part of her job was to escort members of Congress uh, when they came to visit. That's how she met Mark Meadows, and then she became one of his deputy chiefs of staff. Um, those are those those are very close relationships. I had three people who filled those positions, and they you know I saw them all day, every single day. They probably closer to me during my time in the White House than my own family because you in that office sixteen hours a day. So for her to come forward and testify. Um, and, and things that 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 stand against the president and against Mark Meadows, um, that is a, that's a particularly eye-opening sort of development. I wasn't expecting this in the hearing Tuesday. I had seen some of her previous testimony about the hang Mike Pence stuff, but was not expecting um, this to have such gravity as it did. And my guess is it opens up tens of additional hearings or at least tens of additional witnesses. Um, I thought this thing might be ending soon. It looks like it's not going to. Hmm. Well, it, it, speaking of Cassidy Hutchinson's place in the White House and her decision to come forward, I do want to play a, a little bit of sound from uh, the hearing the other day from Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, on, uh, on, I guess, the, the state of play among White House personnel. Here's what Congresswoman Cheney had to say. Her superiors, men many years older, a number of them are hiding behind executive privilege, anonymity, and intimidation. So, Mr. Mulvaney, that that kind of line makes me want to ask you, what about Mark Meadows? Do do you think he shares responsibility for what happened on January 6th? Um, You know, if you take Cassidy's testimony at face value, the answer is yes. Um, I I paid particular attention to something. No one else cares about it because it's, it's way down in the weeds. But one of the things that I was watching online, doing something else, and when she said that she went to talk to the chief of staff and said that, and was, he was sitting on the sofa, that's my old sofa, I used to sit on that sofa, right, by the fireplace, I know exactly what she's talking about. She said she walked into the office and said, Mark, there's, you know, the wires are getting close to the, to the, uh, to the Capitol, and he didn't even look up from his, 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 uh, his, his cell phone. And, the chief, and then the, the chief White House counsel came down and said the same thing, and he didn't even address me, he didn't even look at them, he kept stared at his phone and, 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 you know, was sort of detached. That, to me, um, indicated that the West Wing was completely broken, that the processes had broken down, the protections that are afforded to a president in terms of the people who can get to him and get him information had broken down. Um, I describe it as every, it was about 27 different things have to go wrong for an airplane to crash. Um, the same has to be true for there to be a, uh, to be there a, a, a riot uh, in the Capitol on January 6th, and it sounds like everything was broken. And do I hold a chief of staff responsible for that? Yeah, in part, I, I would I would not be proud of, of the work that I had done uh, if I was chief on that watch, that's for sure. Well, that's that's interesting to hear because obviously Mark Meadows was not the only person, as you said, if 27 things need to go wrong. Uh, but if, if he was the chief of staff, I, I'm I, a little surprised even to hear you say that considering you two go back. You were sort of part of the Tea Party movement, the Freedom Caucus guys. I, is it accurate to say you have been friends? Are you friends? What, what did you see change uh, that leads you to sound disappointed with someone I believe you had worked closely with and, and cooperatively with. What, what happened to Mark Meadows? Yeah, I don't know what happened to Mark Meadows, but your question is, is a fair one, which was, are we, were we friends? Yes, I, I don't know what we are now, but the reason I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this opinion is that that's, chief, that's what chiefs of staff do, right? We, we're, not, we're supposed to call them like we see them. Our job 
president asked me one time, he says, Nick, how do you summarize your job? I said, Mr. President, I'm the guy who's responsible for telling you all the crap you don't want to hear because everybody else is afraid to do it. There's a reason that the life expectancy of a chief of staff is, is less than a year and a half. Barack Obama had four in his first term. Uh, Donald Trump had four. That's not that's a little bit higher than usual, but not much. When you get paid to tell the president stuff he doesn't want to hear and do all the things he doesn't want to do, um, the relationship doesn't last very long. And that's what I'm looking at. I'm sort of looking at this. I, I'm a disinterested, thir- an interested third party at this point. I work for all these folks. I know all these folks. But you got to call them like you see them. And when you see a White House that's broken and a chief of staff that's detached, um, then you have to sort of draw attention to it and say, look, that's, that, that shouldn't be the case. That was a failure at some place. And while the president is always responsible uh, for his own actions and also the people that he appoints and, and chooses to advise him, the chief of staff is the next guy in line in that building. So at this point, what do you think comes next in terms of either the likelihood of uh, Mr. Meadows complying with the subpoena from the committee, or is it likely more likely than it has been that DOJ goes after him for that? They decided not to. What, what's the next step uh, when it comes to Mark Meadows and his decision not to comply so far? Yeah, it's been a long time since I practiced law, and I never practiced criminal uh, law at all. But if I were a betting man, I would bet that Mark Meadows would be indicted now um, and that he would uh, have to show up uh, for his fa- he be indicted for failing to uh, to uh, come to testify to the committee and that he will show up and he'll take the fifth. Uh, he'll plead the Fifth Amendment. Um, the, I think it's a fair question to ask who else might be um, might be coming forward. I understand that uh, White House uh, Chief Counsel Pat Cipollone was subpoenaed yesterday. Um, be very interesting to see if he shows up. He's got attorney-client privilege on some things, but not all things. Pat's an honest man. I don't believe him uh, to be the type of person who would lie, so I'd be curious to see if he testifies. No, like I said, because of the testimony on Tuesday, um, I don't think this process is, is stopping anytime soon. I think you're looking at, at dozens of more witnesses and, and at least 10 more hearings or something like that. This is This is... Tuesday's uh, hearing was a watershed that I I think we'll see repercussions of for uh, many weeks, if not uh, many months, and maybe longer than that. So what do you think former President Trump's place in the party is now? I I think he's damaged. There's no question. I think that's the the really interesting question from a political standpoint. I think if there was any winners this week, uh, it was Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley, anybody who was Mm -hmm. thinking about running against him. Um, uh, now sees him, I think, as damaged. He is damaged. At some point, you have to wonder if there's just not Trump fatigue. Why wouldn't even the hardest core right-wing, you know, MAGA voter go, you know what, uh, I can get you know, 90, I can get all the policies of Donald Trump with Ron DeSantis without all the baggage. That's the type of, of, of discussion that you're starting to hear now within Republican circles. Certainly there's folks who absolutely still defend the president 100%, but I think there's a lot of oxygen given to those um, that next uh, for that first tier of challengers this week, and I think you're much more likely now to have uh, a very vigorous Republican primary season going into 2024. Now that all may change, it all may change. It may turn out that Cassidy Hutchins is lying through her teeth. I don't, I don't think that's going to be the case, but it may be. Um, but, um, but if it if it doesn't change from what we saw on Tuesday, I think you'll see half a dozen people at least running against Donald Trump in 2024. I, I should sneak in one more substance question before we even continue on the the politics, especially because you you've mentioned you know ten more hearings. Um, one has has the committee asked you for any information? You you weren't chief of staff at the time, but have you have you talked to them? 
No, I, 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 I have, I have, I've not been. I've, I'm in communication with Adam Kinzinger on social matters. Adam and I were friends when he was in Washington D.C. So, if anybody asks me if I've talked to the commission, I talked to Adam. But we played baseball together on the congressional team, and I asked him if he was going to go to the game this week. Excuse me, this month. But I have not been subpoenaed. I've not been. No one's caught contact. I mean, I don't have any information. I was not in the White House. Um, I wasn't even in Northern Ireland because of COVID. I was home in South Carolina. Okay. So, well. um, yeah. Uh, and one other thing on, especially as we look forward to the midterms, uh, it, it came out a, a little while back from the committee the assertion that Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, wanted to give Vice President Pence a list of alternate uh, alternate electors. I'm wondering uh, what you make of that information, and and also does does Johnson have to campaign against uh, attacks on this? How how does this play into uh, any members of Congress, any senators who may have been involved on the campaign trail? Yeah, generally, well, I think the Democrats want this hearing to sort of redound to all of the, you know, the damage to sort of redound to the Republican Party generally. I don't think you're seeing that. It's very much a Trump-centric thing, and for that reason, I don't see, don't think these hearings will have any direct impact on the on the House of Representatives. I fully expect Republicans to take that. The Senate is a little bit different. Senate races are always different than House races, and certainly Ron Johnson's name coming up in that hearing on Tuesday is going to give him one more thing that he has to deal with back home. We have a, a saying in the business, if you're explaining, you're losing. And he, uh, he may have to start to explain why he had that, that uh, slate of other electors. Um, and then there's also, when it comes to the Senate, sometimes voters just want calm. They want, they want peace and quiet. Not always, but they want calm. And you have to wonder if the Republicans are offering that, say, in Georgia. And does Herschel Walker, um, is he the sort of calm hand that, that voters might want if they get to the, you know, if they get to November, just decide that uh, they're tired of all this. They want people who are boring and competent and and uh, and don't don't make a lot of news. So um, I, I don't think it's going to have a major impact uh, on the Senate races, but there may be individual races um, that uh, where this does become relevant. And the Senate is so tight, and it's currently fifty-fifty, obviously, um, that uh, it may have an impact on the Senate. Uh, once again, doubt seriously it has any impact on the House races at all. Those are a couple key Senate races to keep an eye on. Now, you mentioned Adam Kinzinger. Uh, he and Liz Cheney are on this panel. I think it probably is fair to say they are not considered part of the House Republican Conference mainstream right now. Uh, what what do you think their role should be and, and will be in their conference as this moves along? Does the, do, does the committee's work, uh, I guess, legitimize their efforts? No, and I have been an opponent of theirs. Uh, I, I, been, I disagreed with the decision from, from the get-go, and I told Adam that, because, again, he and I are friends. It legitimized. Look, it's, it's not people think this is an investigation. It's not. A, it, this is a political witch hunt. There's no question about that. It's Democrats and two Republicans who hate, hate Donald Trump, and you're not seeing all the transcripts. That's true. You're not seeing any cross-examination. That's true. This is not a fair hearing by any stretch of the imagination, and it's certainly not a criminal investigation. Much of what Cassidy Hutchinson said the other day, for example, was hearsay, would never be allowed uh, in a a criminal proceeding. That being said, when a Republican witness who works for a Republican administration under oath says the Republican did wrong, uh, did something wrong, the Republican should pay attention to that. So I'm not trying to, you know, it's a shame that I feel like I have to give the the, the commission credibility, because I think it's it's been wrong from the beginning. 
Um, but when you have Republicans under oath saying the Republicans did something wrong, then Republicans should pay attention and, and respond to it. But uh, no, I, listen, Liz is, uh, Adam's leaving. He's not running for, for a, a re-election, so he'll be gone after the midterms. And my guess is Liz loses. So no, their, their role at the Republican conference is, is zero after this is over. And what about Kevin McCarthy? Was it, do you still think it was a good idea uh, for him to keep members, uh, obviously, other than those two off of the panel? Yeah, I actually think it was, it was Pelosi who made this mistake. I think Kevin did the only thing he could under the circumstances. Pelosi, if she really wanted to harm Donald Trump, um, would, should have wanted to have Republicans watch the hearings. Uh, and if she'd allowed Jim Jordan and, and Andy Biggs on the committee, on the committee, Fox would have covered it more and Republicans would have been watching it. And Republicans who still to this day think that Trump won the election would be hard pressed to maintain that position after seeing all the all the evidence that has been presented. Republicans who still think that January 6th was a peaceful demonstration would be really hard pressed to maintain that after seeing the evidence that has been laid out. Um, so I think Nancy was the one who actually made the mistake here. If she wanted to impact the general electorate, uh, she should have had a whole nation want to watch in and tune these things. And as it turns out, um, you know, I think only half the country is probably paying attention to them. All right, Mr. Mulvaney, thank you so much for joining us. That's Mick Mulvaney, former White House acting chief of staff uh, during the Trump administration. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's bring in the panel. I feel like we have a lot to sort through there. Uh, and happy July 4th, Mr. Mulvaney. Happy July 4th to Jeannie Shinzano and Rick Davis coming back to us, uh, our panel, uh, to discuss. I, guys, I want to hear your takeaways from that. Also, I am wondering what you make of this comment from Senator Pat Toomey, the Republican from Pennsylvania, uh, who also spoke on Bloomberg's balance of power uh, in terms of his takeaways from the January 6th committee and where it leaves former President Trump. I think he disqualified himself from serving in public office by virtue of his post-election behavior, especially leading right up to January 6th. I think the revelations from this committee um, make his path to even the Republican nomination much more tenuous. So, uh, Rick, I, I want to hear your opinion, not only on Toomey's assessment there, but what we heard uh, from Mr. Mulvaney, who, who seems to think uh, that the former president is, is weaker than he was before in terms of the Republican nomination if he were to run again in 2024. Rick, where does the January 6th committee investigation leave Donald Trump in the Republican primary if he were to run? 
Well, I, I don't know even about the Republican primary, but I think Mick was right. I mean, it, this has definitely been a weakening, but there's been a weakening going on really since he left the presidency. It hasn't just started with this commission hearings. Uh, but when you have the Wall Street Journal editorializing that Donald Trump shouldn't run, you know, a organ of uh, 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 conservatism, you know, and, 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 you know, the Washington Examiner, another conservative outlet, you know, highly critical, abrading Trump uh, this last week. Uh, these are these are echoing through uh, these communities within the conservative movement and Republican Party, and 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 they're going to have an impact. And and I think the point that Mick made about having Republicans testifying at the hearing uh, about Republicans has been the most effective way of of basically giving it the credibility that it didn't have by having Republicans actually sitting in the committee other than, you know, Cheney and, and, and Kinzinger. So I think these things are having an impact. Uh, hard to tell how it's going to impact Donald Trump and his decision, even whether to run or not. Um, but, uh, but clearly his popularity is on the wane. So, uh, it, Jeannie, I, I'm curious what you make on on takeaways from the other day's hearing, uh, thinking of, of what Mr. Mulvaney said, uh, that, yes, there's been a lot of attention on that line, that image that we kind of all have of former President Trump leaning for the steering wheel, jostling with a Secret Service agent, uh, may have been the most dramatic part. But as Mr. Mulvaney said, he, he is of the opinion that uh, the most important part or a more important important part was uh, Trump knowing there were guns there, the idea of violence being a possibility and the president at the time knowing that. Uh, what What is your main takeaway from the Hutchinson testimony and where does that, uh, that I guess, fight with Secret Service rank in what we should be uh, contemplating? Well, you know, I couldn't agree more with with what Mick Mulvaney said during your conversation, which was fascinating. And, you know, when he made the case, as you just mentioned, that that wasn't the most important point, it may have been the most salacious, it wasn't the most important. I think legally, that is absolutely true, because nobody is disputing the fact that the president wanted to go to the Capitol that day. And he was angry when he couldn't, whether he grabbed the wheel or somebody's clavicle or not. Nobody is disputing the fact that he didn't care if the mag trump how do you say that J- jack Ma- mags <laughs> uh, I, that's the that's the one thing i didn't research is how yeah, to pronounce uh, that word how to pronounce that so you know whether they he wanted the people to come in uh, his crowd to be bigger that sounds m- like exactly what we know about donald trump whether they had weapons or not and then to march up to the capitol those are the important things um legally in terms of culpability in terms of consciousness of guilt um so i, I think that is what is most important but i will tell you i spent last night doing something I've never done in my life, Jack, which was listening to a primary out of Wyoming, of all places. Mm. And what I heard, back to your conversation, is that whether or not Trump runs in 2024 or has a chance of winning, this whole MAGA movement is a lot bigger than any individual, whether Mark Meadows is legally culpable or Donald Trump runs or not. You hear a belief among people on the ground that the election was stolen. And in your conversation, it struck me and I wrote it down. Mick Mulvaney says this committee is a political witch hunt. And I think that tells you the amount of division and polarization. It's bigger than Donald Trump. And I think that's what's going to sustain regardless of what he decides to do. Right. Well, that's one good point. Also, you know, on the point of, of calling it a witch hunt, I would point out 
Congress is pretty partisan. Uh, congressional investigations are probably naturally going to be a lot more politicized, a lot more partisan than uh, something from the executive branch. Uh, so I, I take that for what it's worth. One other key point uh, from Mr. Mulvaney on Mark Meadows, uh, emphasizing that if, if Ms. Hutchinson's uh, testimony is correct, then a significant amount of responsibility does fall to Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff at the time. Uh, Rick, what have we learned about uh, Meadows and, and uh, Trump aside, who else uh, appears to have had a chance to stop this from happening on January 6th and didn't act the right way? Yeah, I, I thought the characterization uh, that uh, Mick made of uh, um, uh, Meadows sort of sitting on his couch, disconnected, the process failing, I, I, I think that might have been a bit of an understatement. Uh, I their process is in place to keep bad things from happening, both in and out of the White House, and people are generally committed to do that. I think this is different. I think these these processes were not ignored; they were subverted. I think most of the most of the White House staff that were engaged on this process with with Donald Trump and and trying to subvert the elections were in on it. And I think there's no other characterization for for uh, Meadows than to say the the guy was part of the problem. He was he was actively trying to subvert an, uh, an authentic election. And, and, and it all was coming to unravel on January 6th. And that's what you saw sitting on that couch. I don't think it was because they were ignoring or hadn't taken the right precautions. I think the guy was actively out trying to subvert the election. And that's certainly what the testimonies indicated. Right. Well, guys, that is a little bit of a heavy note to leave it on heading into 4th of July weekend. But thank you so much, Rick Davis, Jeannie Shianzano, for helping us make sense of this news-packed week. Everybody, please have a great weekend. I'm on vacation now. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.